Welcome to the Deadline Podcast, our weekly roundup of the great obituaries in the Daily Telegraph. I'm Harry DeKettville. This week, unreliable memoirs as we look at the life of Maya Angelou and a rogue from UKIP's roster, Mark Fitzgeorge Parker. There's moustache news too, and we explore the life of a test pilot, asking what kind of person actively wants to fly the unproven and often downright dangerous. We also ask if you can elevate catching a ball to an art form and reflect on the good old, bad old days of the Cold War. Christopher, hello, how are you? I'm very well. I've just been to see King Lear at the National Theatre with Simon Russell Beale. Jolly good. I was in one of those seats just next to the stage, mm-hmm. which a bit, spl- bit splashy when Gloucester has his eyes put out. But apart from that, it means that Simon Russell Beale can see that bit of the audience. See them to spit on them with his uh, pronunciation. But he was... Yes, he did that a bit, mm. but everybody does. Mm. At least you can hear what he's saying. That's a very good thing. I could see him staring at me. Yeah. And my guess at what he was thinking is, is that Peter Blake in the audience? Is that Peter Blake? Not Peter Hall, but Peter Blake, the artist. I'm often mistaken for him these days. I'm stopped in the streets by uh, rather nice young girls who want a career in painting. How interesting. Christopher Howe's there with an anecdote about uh, King Lear at the National Theatre, but um, also he's got one or two things to talk about. Poland, in its pre-democratic uh, era, under the rule, the autocratic rule, of Wojciech Jaruzelski, the last of Poland's communist dictators, really, who thought that he was doing a good job in maintaining Poland from the predatory instincts of the Soviet Union to one side and the West to another. He thought that they might get invaded, I suppose, from either side. And that was the excuse he gave for not instilling democracy in the country at an early date. Um, Christopher, people seem to love dictators, but only in retrospect. Jaruzelski was a traitor in his time, but rather respected later on. I think it's pretty uphill work to respect Jaruzelski, actually, because he did impose martial law in December 1981. Mm. The excuse was that the Soviet Union would have invaded if he hadn't. But nevertheless, he was a cat's paw for the wicked Soviets. And what united the country in those days was hatred of the Soviet Union. And you had this upwelling of popular feeling, the solidarity movement, and then the election of the Pope, of course, which helped things. So people rebelled against sort of materialism and Marxism in their hypocritical guise, which was really the secret police. I found that in 1982... When you were Still there. under martial mm. law in Poland, that it was a paranoid nation to some extent because of the secret police bugging everybody's phones and mm-hmm. really spoiling people's lives as well. This is what we forget, that you couldn't get a decent job if you didn't play ball. or You got put in prison, beaten up, mm. all the usual things. Yes, I remember when I was in Germany as a correspondent and going to the Stasi archives in Berlin, and what was... Astonishing was the destructive nature of that secret police activity because they would co-opt you. And so I think the astonishing figures in East Eastern Germany, one in seven people were either a Stasi agent or actively informing for the Stasi, so informing on their neighbours. And it's just that corrosive watchfulness yes. which actually permeates throughout society. The other interesting thing about Poland and, and the Solidarity Movement is one remembers the end of it 
in the late 80s, but it had been going on for almost 20 years. I mean, Jaroszewski was famous, of course, for being defence minister when dozens of people were shot in 1970 at a dockyard protest. And that's 1970, almost two decades before democracy emerged. Yes, I think you can see two sides of the coin there, because Jaroszewski was seeing which way the wind was blowing and gradually hoping that something would change for the better. But at at the time, he was a baddie. And the people who were the goodies, as we see in Andrzej Wider's film, Man of Steel, 1981, mm-hmm. just before Jaroszelski imposed martial law, they they were really selfless. They they were madly um, not worried about their own lives. Or and even their uh, families. They were sort of instinctive. Well, that's where the difficulty comes in, yeah. yes, about the family. But nevertheless, I think there was sufficient overwhelming unity of purpose amongst the people of Poland to to bring about change. Without them, I think the fall of the Soviet Union wouldn't have taken place so quickly. I, I couldn't believe how quickly it took place. It's funny, isn't it? Because Jaroszewski's uh, reputation might have been bad and then in the last 10 years, slightly better, or people look back with nostalgia upon the firm dictatorship days. But People, Lech Walesa rather has gone the other way, a great hero, and then of course he became democratically elected and led that country. And people thought he was less good as a democratically elected leader. So his reputation yes, has gone slightly. Yes, that's surprising. I mean, he he was a great man. He was and, great at leading the strike. In as Kedansk. you say, but instinctive and highly, incredibly brave at the time to stand up and and lead that uh, solidarity revolution, really. Yes, and all the people that we saw with him. I found it very stirring stuff, I must say. Brilliant. Well, that's the life of Wojciech Jaroszewski. Now this week's moustache news, straight on to it. Odd bits in life can throw up odd twists and turns in your career. Maternity leave, for example. Suddenly, you've thrown out of your career for nine months and you come up with brilliant ideas. In the time, I think Mumsnet was one of those maternity leave ideas. And it strikes me that soldiers who often retire early for obvious reasons, either after conflicts or because the end of their service career has come, are young, fit men with a great future, and they want to have to come up with second careers. Some do well, some not. But this week, we carried the obituaries of two who did. Nigel Martin was a former Marine, and he brought theme park adventures to Chessington Zoo. You may know that. Chessington Zoo. Christopher, have you ever been to Chessington Zoo? I have. I used to live quite close to it. It was always rather a miserable place. <laughs> I think it's where Guy the Gorilla died of a tooth d- decay because people kept feeding him chocolate. Oh, dear. Well, people don't really go for the animals anymore. They tend to go for the theme park adventures. Were you tempted onto the big park rides? No, that, no, that came later. Uh, no, I, I wasn't, as a matter of fact. Well, that came later, and that was <laughs> Nigel Martin's doing. Well, good for him. He, he was the man who uh, brought theme park rides to Chessington Zoo. On the other hand, Michael Bretherton, well, he was called up in the Black Watch and attached to the Parachute Regiment after the Second World War. But as a young man afterwards he decided to form a housing association, having moved in with his family to Elgin Crescent, what is now a very, very uh, expensive part of Notting Hill, but was then considered almost a slum. And there was a famous uh, uh, landlord named Peter Rachman who was um, considered a slum landlord. Am I allowed to say that without being sued? Well, there's a revisionist version of this, which is Rachman was blamed for the ills of society by a cabal of the usual ruling classes. Um, right. And so that's the version you'll find in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, if you look him up. Okay. There. But it, 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 it's certainly true that there were very bad housing conditions in Notting Hill. 
and one of the people who think, thought that it was worth doing something about it was Michael Bretherton, and he formed a housing association in Notting Hill after his career as a soldier. We also carried the life of Robert Lamont. He was a Belgian fighter pilot. Um, he flew Spitfires after making his way to Britain from Belgium. The interesting thing about his life is he was shot down mm. and found himself back in, back in Poland, or in Poland, I should say, where he became the leading lady in the theatre productions of Stalag Luft III, the prison camp made famous by The Great Escape. It was an extraordinary thing. I suppose one thinks of digging there with Christopher, but they had um, theatre productions fortnightly. Very professional they were, too. Um, it's rather admirable, isn't it? It is admirable. I was thinking uh, that the good detail here in this story is that um, the influx, the steady influx of new prisoners, because people were constantly being shot down, meant that the prisoners at Starleg Luft Three were always able to see the latest productions from the West End. They fought lightly productions. One pilot even arrived with a ticket to Arsenic and Old Lace, which was a production in 1942 on the stage. And um, he was shot down before he could see that evening's no. production. Terrible shame. But he got to see it at Starleg Luft Three. So there you go. <laughs> Some <laughs> consolation. Some consolation. Now let's have a look, last in moustache news, at two test pilots, because I think it takes a brave man to go up in aircraft in wartime anyway. But David Lockspeiser and David Dennison were two test pilots who were willing to test out new machines for the uh, RAF and for air forces around the world. It seems extraordinary, really. For instance, David Lockspeiser was sent off to the help the Burmese Air Force, and the reason was it had grounded its Sea Fury aircraft after a series of unexplained fatal accidents. Now, Christopher, it would rather it would put me off if someone yeah. said there's been a series don't of unexplained fatal accidents. No, I'm not very good with motor cars, let alone aeroplanes. I don't think I'd take it up anywhere. Uh, do you mind just popping up to 30,000 feet and finding out what might have gone wrong? It must be a particular kind of temperament. It's not quite like being a war correspondent, is it? Who, no. You would know about that. No, I know. I think it's something they both these people, uh, Lockspeiser and Den Denison, enjoy motor racing and scuba diving. Yeah, exactly. So I was taken by the fact that when Lockspeiser was with Hawkers, mm. they forced him to give up his hobby of <laughs> motor car racing. But I was glad to hear that he designed uh, an aircraft which was a sort of aerial Land Rover. Sounds That's nice right. and safe. Doesn't it? David Denison, I mean, the extraordinary thing is that David Dennison was pleased to test not only other people's aircraft, but test things on himself. So mm. in one experiment, he um, uh, accidentally injected himself with mercury, which is definitely not a good no, thing No, I don't do. think he did it much good, did it? Uh, he just managed to avoid amputating his arm, or being forced to have his arm amputated, but his kidneys went into failure, and uh, he excreted mercury in his urine for more than five years. Well, he was lucky to be alive. I think so. Um... The other thing that he did is a bit like uh, Lockspeiser, who was wondering why these fatal accidents were going on. Lockspeiser found, by the way, that the Burmese aircraft's, uh, Air Force's Sea Furies were crashing because carbon monoxide was leaking into the cockpits. And so oh. the, David Dennison, what he found, unlike Lockspeiser with, um, uh, with the Burmese Air Force, he found that uh, pilots were losing consciousness on landing at sea. He couldn't understand why, when pilots had to crash land on sea, so many of them failed to escape, even though their aircraft were intact on the, on the surface of the sea before sinking. And he wondered whether they were paralysed somehow, and he found that, indeed, pilots were shocked into unconsciousness, um, basically concussed by the impact of the landing on sea, and so made no attempt to escape, even though they were alive and the aircraft was floating for some time before it sank. But, of course, he only discovered this by experiments on himself That's in right. an acceleration chamber. So, 
pretty impressive. Very brave, and I'm sure there are pilots uh, all around the world who have much to owe to these two men. Now, Christopher, do the readers have a taste for adventure? Are they experimenting upon themselves this week? What are their letters? Well, we had a bit of a tsunami on the letters desk at the beginning of the week, which was unusual because it was a bank holiday. But this was an historic moment, the first time in its history that the Conservative Party had been driven into third place in a national election. Mm, Why was that, Christopher? Well, I don't know why, but what happened is that, as we all know, UKIP was in first place in the European elections. Mm. So Michael Smitten of Schiffnell in Shropshire wrote in to say, when the main parties shocked by the election results say that they now need to listen to the electorate, May I ask what they were doing previously? Mm-hmm. Stephen Carpenter of Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire was incensed by the assertion of Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, that voters who want to uh, give us a kicking will return to us, meaning the Tories. Mm. This, Mr Carpenter said, was wishful thinking. When will the penny drop for Mr Cameron and his friends? You don't, think that, Mr. You don't think that Mr Carter means that the voters, the cheesed-off voters, will return to give them another kicking? Having given us one kicking, they'll come back for a bit more. Well, actually, if you look at it, the kicking is only done by a minority because there's only a turnout of 35%, I'm sorry to say, in the European elections. Mm. So even a large proportion of that is a small proportion of all of us. Mm. So if we want to get our kicking boots on, I think we ought to Do it rally around in, in the polling booths if we want to. An intriguing letter came from Gareth Kriker of... Prestwich in Lancashire. As a Jew, he wrote, I was horrified by the rise of the right wing in the European elections. It sends shivers down my spine, and yet I voted UKIP. Most of my friends tell me I was stupid and that a vote for UKIP is a vote for racists and those who would kick Jews, Muslims and others out of Britain. I do not accuse Nigel Farage of this, but in the long term they may be right, said Mr Kriker. I voted UKIP to tell the mainstream parties and technocrats in Europe that I am unhappy that my democratic rights have been removed. It seems uh, that voters are told what to do by unelected busybodies. Mm. So the tsunami rolled on the next day and slightly abated on the third. Right. As the uh, page began to appear from above the waters Mm -hmm. of fury... Other important matters, such as the future of England's woodlands, um, were discussed. A coalition of woodland folk, including Jonathan Porritt and the Ramblers, demanded that the woodlands of England should be placed under the care of new public management, uh, as the government had promised. There was a row a couple of years ago about... Selling off forests. Yes, it was It was something that people took a great interest in mm. and the government promised to do something and nothing's been done. Right. One other thing to do with good old England was an observation from Orlando Murrin of Exeter that you can't get hold of the famous Miniver Rose. There was a film in the Second World War, Mrs Miniver. What colour is it? Well, it's red and it, in the film, Greer Garson is Mrs Miniver. And the local station master breeds a rose named after her and wins the flower show. Mm-hmm. Well, in real life, there was already a rose which was in cultivation named Mrs. Miniver, which was inspired by Jan Struthers' original book. And this rose was produced in France in 1940. Mr. Murray had been looking for it all over Europe. Mm. And eventually he tracked down this rose in a collection 
in Germany. Um, when he got there, he found that the harsh winter of 2012 had done for this rose, so the last one had died. This and is the, he the wants very to last know, one. Oh. Well, I don't know. Mm. He wants to know whether our readers have got Mrs Miniver growing in their gardens. I hope they'll write in and tell us. Even more imaginatively, Trevor Allenson of Cheltenham described to us something familiar which I think most of us don't even talk about, let alone write letters about, which is staring at the tiles in the bathroom and oh, seeing funny faces in them. This is an absolutely loopy letter, Christopher. I love it. Well, Mr Allison wrote to say, while sitting in the bathroom, I've been able to study the pattern closely and I found it possible to recognise the following with no trouble at all. A dark man with a beard, the life-size heads of Marilyn Monroe and my Aunt Lucette, a cocker spaniel, a lion's face, a horse's head, a Jack Russell puppy, a map of North America, a cherub sitting on a cloud, and a Roman centurion. It's an extraordinary list, and he can spot all these figures on the tiles. Well, it's not just him. People wrote him with similar observations, and there's a subtlety which is brought up by Trevor Rhodes from Poole in Dorset. He says that in the 1960s, there was a popular design of tile. At first, the pattern seemed to be just a random veining of marble, but after some contemplation, he says, one began to discern running chickens on these tiles. Chickens. Mm. Some had pink chickens, others had blue chickens in their bathroom. The worst arrangement, he found, is when the tiles were all laid the same way, so that... <laughs> The chickens were running in the same direction. Christopher, thank you so much for that roundup of this week's letters. Now, part two, where we have a look at memoirs, reliable and otherwise. Following the deaths of Maya Angelou, a black American author whose chronicle of her dirt-poor upbringing became a literary sensation, and the death of Mark Fitzgeorge Parker, a rather louche writer and jailbird who became UKIP's press officer and helped Nigel Farage write his memoirs and also chronicled his own life in jail in a barely fictionalised account called Conviction. Christopher, Maya Angelou, was her work as a novelist, or memoirist, I should say, and poet, something that struck you and that you enjoyed? Well, I don't know about the memoir. I know that her book called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, made a great impact. I think it's to do with her, actually. She's a very strong character, and she just hit the moment during the fight for civil rights, uh, principally among black people in America. But then she performed one of her poems at Bill Clinton's inauguration, and she read it marvellously, and she's got such a good voice for reading poetry. Yet, if you look at the poem on the um, Pulse of the Morning, I think it's called, it reads rather like birthday card verses written by Martin Luther King. I mean, it's pretty poor stuff, hard to understand. And yet it's got the cadences, sometimes even phrases from the Bible. And everybody loved it. Mm. And I think that's really her. It's nothing to do with the quality of her writing. Yes, she did seem... She was elevated after a while, this extraordinary first memoir, which discussed the hardships of her upbringing, which are, of course, completely alien to most middle-class, white, book-reading Americans. They were astonished Americans. at what they, they read. Yes, they simply had no idea what the hell was going on, this woman having a totally other life in their own country. And I think that uh, extremely remarkable, eye-opening for many book-reading liberal Americans to discover... And having discovered her, she was clearly then elevated to a, a sort of untouchable plane. And that untouchability was, of course, literary as well as personal. 
and some of her literature may not have been um, worthy of that, that, that praise. Who knows? I'm not a great expert that there was in our obit one a famous review which we quoted because by the fifth or sixth volume of her memoirs, uh, she was discussing an account of her time in the island of Hawaii where coming on stage where she was famous for singing, she decided instead to dance. I asked for the music, she said, then invited it to enter my body and find the broken and sore places and restore, restore them. That it would blow through my mind and dispel the fogs. I danced for the African I had loved and lost in Africa. I danced for bad judgments and good fortune, for moonlight lying like rich white silk on the sand before the great pyramids in Egypt, and for the sound on ceremonial fontonfrom drums, waking the morning air in Takoradi. The dance was over and the audience was standing and applauding. With relief, perhaps, suggested one reviewer. Mark Fitzgeorge Parker, on the other hand, was a ukipper who chronicled his own life in a deeply unreliable memoir. I think he was quite a deeply unreliable chap, actually. Um, there you Do go. Do you think he was a cad? I think he was a cad. A or rogue, a bounder. And a bounder. He was certainly loose and a jailbird. Um, but people... In the way that many cads and bounders, uh, he, like many, attracted enormous loyalty from people around him who loved him. For he his must have had charm, a very dangerous quality. Clearly. He rounded off a conventional public school in Cambridge education with a spell in jail, which I thought was equally conventional. No? Uh, does it always happen? Mm, sometimes. Quite often you find... Uh, We've Epitomies got of the establishment heading off to a bit of time in Chokey. We've got that to look forward to in your career, then. Absolutely. What do we think? I suppose that UKIP was a, was a transformed party in the time that he was there, possibly not to do with the efforts of Mark Fitzgeorge Parker. His efforts, really, in his Cambridge days, were more restricted to um, funding his sybaritic lifestyle by stealing rare books from college libraries and issuing duff checks. <laughs> yes, it sounds like a rather unconvincing novel, doesn't it, his life? Poor well, fellow. Well, he must have uh, been on the move all the time to live off his wits in that manner. He was on the move all the time, Christopher. He was. He moved frequently. And his novel, his life was like an unconvincing novel. I wonder what his unconvincing novels were like there. It was Conviction, his thinly veiled memoir of life inside jail, was described as a foul-mouthed thriller. It featured a young man called Sebastian, not Mark, a parody of upper-class conceit, according to the Daily Telegraph. And Sebastian gets himself sent to jail in order to investigate the death of a friend. Anyway, really what happened to him is that the everyday detail of prison life, homosexual rape, casual brutality by the screws and other scenes too horrible to mention here, were really laid out for all to see and derived, apparently, from author's first-hand experience. So if that really did happen, Mark, poor you. Very sorry to hear it. Anyway... Unreliable memoirs there with Mark Fitzgeorge Parker and Maya Angelou. And that's it. Christopher, have you got anything else there that you'd like to add? It's caught your eye? Yeah, well, it's caught the eye of our readers. They were remembering what their mothers or grandmothers replied when they were asked what was for dinner or for pudding. Rex Taylor of Bungay in Suffolk wrote in to say he was always told, if he asked what was for pudding, three jumps at the pantry door. What does that mean, Christopher? I'm not quite sure what it means, but it was one of those things that you say to children to put them off the scent, as it were, and keep them quiet. Rather annoying if you were a yes, child, yes, I would imagine. Yes. I have been a child, and I think I was annoyed. Surely My grandmother not. used to say, uh, bread and pull it, if I asked what was for dinner, which at least is a joke. 
Mm. But, but my favourite amongst our readers' observations came from Sh- Sheila Parry of Farnham and Surrey, mm. whose mother's invariable answer was, air pie with the crust off. There you go. This week I just wanted to add the story of Phil Sharp. He was a brilliant cricketer, but... We consider sport one discipline, but of course all sports are composed of many disciplines. In golf, for instance, you have to master driving and putting. In cricket, which was Phil Sharp's talent, he was a great batsman, but particularly a great fielder, and catching was his thing. He excelled as a slip fielder, and uh, really he raised it to an art form. Sometimes his feats were hardly believable. In 1963, he was standing very close to the wicket in the first test against the West Indies at Old Trafford, when he caught a full-blooded slash from Joey Carew. Wisden called this catch impressive. Others who were there, including our obituarist, thought it miraculous, which I think is wonderful that you can have one talent so specific like catching that decades and decades, half a century on, people still are breathtaking and blown away in admiration. And catching a ball is something that, as we said in childhood, everybody does, but he was so good at it that half a century on, people remember him for it. It makes miracles happen. It does make miracles happen. That's it. Don't forget that if you have anything you'd like to add, you can contact us via Twitter on at Telegraph Obits. I'm at Harry DeCue. And you can also email us with your suggestion and comments on the deadline at telegraph.co.uk. Christopher, what's the contacts for the letters team? If you want to send a letter, email dtletters, that's all one word, dtletters at telegraph.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at LettersDesk. At LettersDesk. All the obits mentioned in today's show are on our website. Until next week, this has been The Deadline. (laughs) 